Three words, the most important words, the last words in every meeting, keep coming back. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, we've got Matthew McDonough joining us, the founder of the Passersby Podcast. He's going to take us through his horrific battle with alcoholism and his inspiring journey into recovery up until today. So join us now. But first, a little Share Podcast news. So it's official, guys. Sober Nation now has a podcast section called Sober Podcasts with an S. And that's www.soberpodcasts.com. Com. You can also go to the Sober Nation website, and on the right-hand side of the website, scroll down, you'll see a big banner that says Sober Podcasts. Click on that, and you will see all of our podcasts listed on there. WWA, Wrestling with Addiction, That Sober Guy, The Recovery Elevator, and The Share Podcast. All four of us are listed on Sober Podcasts, so make sure to get over there and check it out. The page looks awesome. Great job, Tim. All right. So moving forward, I would also like to read a couple of emails that I got from some of our listeners and provide a little bit of feedback. The first one is from Caitlin. Caitlin says, hi, Omar. My name is Caitlin. I'm 22 and I'm coming up on 90 days sober. Your podcast has impacted my recovery. When I can't make meetings, I know I can count on one of your podcasts to get me through however I'm feeling. Although I was doing so well, I'm re- I've recently relapsed. How do I begin to pick up the pieces? I'm overwhelmed with regret and self-loathing and ultimately feel stuck. I want to be able to forgive myself, pick up the pieces, and continue on with this incredible path I was blessed with. Thank you for everything that you do. Caitlin, thank you so much, you brave girl, for uh, reaching out to me and... Being open to vulnerability. Now, what I do with Caitlin is what I do with a lot of the newcomers that email me with these same similar issues. Um, I like to refer them over to the Recovery Elevators private accountability group. There is just tons and tons of activity going on there all day long. People are posting videos, inspirational quotes, and they're also talking about how they're feeling today. I feel like drinking. I'm feeling depressed. Uh, I just lost my job. So there's a lot of vulnerability, a lot of openness because it's a private group. It's, it's almost like going to a meeting with a few hundred people. Uh, so I've added Caitlin to that private group. I've added her to my private group. It's the Sharing Helps Addicts in Recovery private group. There's over 400 people on that one as well. So there's a wonderful opportunity to get sober online. If you can't make a meeting, if you don't feel comfortable in a meeting, if you're not ready to go to a meeting, you can at least entertain the idea of connecting with like-minded individuals like we have in our groups. Uh, Another great way to connect with other members is through online meetings, to which I am now connected with is the That Sober Guy meeting. That's every Sunday at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And following that at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, uh, Michael Hilton and myself, as well as Stephanie Schilling, have now started a blab online meeting, which includes video and chat. It's a lot of fun. We pick a topic and you just kind of jump right in. Social media, online media, this is 24 hours, seven days a week. 
you can always connect with someone online. And that's the beauty of connecting yourself in the social media pipeline. So I encourage you to reach out to me, O at the sharepodcast.com. I'll add you to Facebook. I'll add you to the groups as well as add you to the Sober Recovery and Beyond Accountability Group on Facebook. On that one, we'll announce when the next Blab meeting will be. So send me an email and let's get connected. Again, thank you, Caitlin, for your email. Now, the next one I want to read came from a guy named Brian, but Brian came from Transitions Daily. If you guys go to the website, you'll see that I also have Transitions Daily listed on the right-hand side of the Share Podcast website. If you click on that, it'll take you to a website where you can subscribe to get a daily newsletter that has all the AA daily devotionals right at your fingertips. So, for example, you've got... 24 hours a day, AA thoughts for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. So he wrote in, I have subscribed to numerous daily recovery emails, and I find yours to be far by far the most useful to me. My question to you is, how the heck do you come up with such great content each and every day? It seems like a lot of work to find so much meaningful information to include each time. I am six months sober and just wanted to say your daily emails are really helping out. Each time I cut out something that speaks out to me for future reference. I found the daily email sign up through the Share Podcast. Omar has it listed on his website. Great podcast, by the way. Brian, thank you so much for the feedback. I've also got Transitions Daily on the newsletter. So if you're one of the subscribers and you get one of our daily newsletters, then at the bottom you'll also see Transitions Daily. It's a great resource. For those of you that are already subscribed to a daily reading, this one is all in one, so you may just want to check it out. So thanks again, Transitions Daily. Thanks again, Brian. Next topic is articles and stories. I am encouraging our listeners to send in their story, their written story or written article about recovery or about what's going on in their lives. There's so many people that want to get involved in blogging or writing articles or submitting articles, whatever the case may be. And I'd love to feature those on the Share Podcast. Our first one was from Wes Pierce. Wes submitted his story and it's already posted on the website. And the title of that article is My Story of Addiction by Wes Pierce. After I posted it, Wes writes to me, I can't thank you enough for that last email. I've been praying morning and night in hope someone can do something with my story. And I think it just came true for you to post it on there. I want to cry right now because it's just a great overwhelming feeling that I thought I would ever experience. I can't thank you enough for this. Wes, thank you for submitting your story. When someone opens themselves up, makes themselves vulnerable to share their battle with drug addiction and alcoholism, there's a magical effect that happens when you put pen to paper. One of the most important things that it does is that it allows you to process your feelings differently. This is an extremely positive way of reaffirming your desire to change and your faith in a higher power. So I would like to encourage all of you who have a story to write an article to write about recovery or maybe just a journal entry of what you're going through in this moment right now. Send it to me. We'll post it on the website. And Wes, thanks again for submitting your story. Next, we get an email from Edward and Edward writes, Hey, oh, I recently got turned on to the podcast after Googling recovery-based podcasts. I love the show and thanks for doing it. I absolutely enjoy hearing people's stories. 
and I think it speaks to the primary purpose of sharing our experience, strength, and hope, and carrying the message to the alcoholic and addict who still suffers. My favorite episodes have been Gut Level Honest, that's with George D., Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, Jeff Shane, about the, record, about the record industry guy, and the girl with the meth addiction from Texas. That would be Lee Ann W., America's Sweetheart. The Rule 62 thing makes me laugh, and I believe it supplements my recovery by giving me things to consider which are sort of fringe or on the outskirts of my recovery as well. I hope you don't change the format of either show. Edward, be sure I won't be changing any of the format. And thank you so much for submitting your email. Um, the reason why I'm reading this one primarily is because Edward sent in his favorites. Gut Level Honesty with George D., if you haven't heard it, is one of the episodes that I've gotten the most amount of feedback on. I've had people specifically email me to let me know how impactful and powerful that story was in their lives. So if you haven't heard uh, George, D's, George D's story, be sure to check that one out. It's heavy. Prepare yourself. But it's an amazing, amazing story of hope and recovery. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is just hysterical. Jeff Shane is in the record industry, and he and just imagine what goes on in the record industry, especially back in the 60s. Just a tremendous amount of drug use. So, um, But he is also today a huge advocate in his community for recovery and outreach programs. Jeff gives back every single day. And Leanne, well, Leanne's story is also amazing. And it is also one of the ones that I have been emailed about quite a bit. So in the spirit of Edward sending in his favorite podcast episodes, I'm going to list off a few of the ones that I've received emails for that they love. Uh, the most recent one was uh, Dana Bowman's book, Bottled, A Woman's Guide to Early Recovery, Warren Broad's Recovery in the Now, Ariel Spanville's Invitation to the White House, Eric Zimmer, The One You Feed, Amber Leone Murphy, Can't Keep a Sober Girl Down, has probably one of the highest download numbers of any of the single episodes. And a few of my favorites, which are Sarah C., A Modern Gypsy, Raquel G., The Runaway Model, and Bobby G., Mr. Californication. If you have not heard one or more of those episodes, be sure to check them out. I'd love to hear your feedback. Email me at o at thesharepodcast.com. Tell me what your favorite episode is so I can share it with our listeners. And finally, I would just like to thank... Our listeners who have made generous donations, Susan, Lewis, and Mark, thank you guys again for your support. We absolutely appreciate it. And once again, the best way to show your support is to give us a five-star rating on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you do not know how to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, go to YouTube, type in, how do I leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio? And you'll have like 55,000 outcomes for you to choose from. They're quick one to two minute videos. It'll show you exactly what to do. And it is absolutely the best way to support the show. So now without any further ado, we're about to jump into Matthew's story. But first, a quick message from our sponsor. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery, and addiction news, 
as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Now back to the show. Hey, Matthew, thanks for joining us. Hey, yo, thanks for having me. Great to have you in the show, buddy. How you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. Great weather outside today. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's uh, mid-October right now, and it's probably about 70 degrees outside in Michigan, and that's crazy. Oh, wow. I love it, man. HP, baby. Right. <laughs> All right, let's get started. Okay, folks, today we have Matthew McDonough joining us on the Share Podcast, the founder of the Passersby Podcast. But first, tell us about how your life is today, your hobbies, exercise, take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery, and tell us about your podcast. So I run a podcast called Passersby. It's not entirely recovery-related, but there are some recovery-related podcasts on there where I take stories from strangers. I just have a random stranger on or another podcaster, you know, somebody I met on who messages me on Facebook or Twitter. And if they have a story to tell and they want to tell their story, then I have them on and we do a little short form. They tell their story in its entirety. And then I just let it out there because I've always enjoyed telling stories and hearing people tell stories, normal stories, not the moth or these rehearsed kind of stories. I think, <laughs> yes, I think the organic form of stories, a normal person telling a normal story is really something of beauty. So that's what I'm trying to capture with my podcast. And as far as my everyday life goes, you know, I wake up in the morning and I roll out of bed 10 minutes before work like everybody else. And I take that 10 minutes, you know, as I'm driving to work and skidding in at the last second, you know, that's kind of my meditative. I don't really think about anything and I don't really do my prayer or anything like that nowadays because it's kind of, as far as things go for me three years in now, sobriety is just second nature. You know, that's what I know and that's what's happening. And I don't really see any other way for that at this moment. And hobbies, I do my podcast. As I said, I also I spend a lot of time being a father, watching my wife do roller derby. She's gotten into a uh, a women's roller derby team here near <laughs> home. So it's fun to watch her skate around and smash into some people. That is very, very cool, man. That's a first here on the Share Podcast. Is this kind of like a team or is this just for fun or how does that well, work? Right now she's just started. Okay. So she's working on getting, you know, evaluated and certified. And when that happens, then she can start bouting and, you know, hitting people for real. Girls from all around the area. <laughs> I mean, it's not like the, that late night roller derby you used to see on TV. There's a lot more agility. There's a lot more sport in it and not so much show anymore. Very cool. I dig it, man. I dig it. I follow my program. Well, not my program, the program, but the one that I've carved out for myself kept myself sober, kept myself clean. And I wake up every morning and my program's laying in bed there next to me or he's laying in his crib or he's out telling me that he wants eggs for breakfast or peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> Those kids, man, they certainly play a very, well, for some of us, it did for me, they play just a crucial role in our recovery. There's no question about it. Oh, yeah. Well... For me, early on, before I even had met him, because I met my son when he was nine months old, and it sounds weird, but you know, I met him 
by dating his mother. Gotcha. And he's not mine biologically, but he is my son, and I call him such. And the funny thing is, I got sober on July 19th of 2012, and I made a promise to myself that day that, you know, I wouldn't allow my son or my daughter to grow up knowing what it is like to have a daddy drinker or an alcoholic in the family. So he was born August 3rd, about half a month after I got sober, just as the shakes were quitting and I could sleep through the night. Right. And I wasn't walking around the town at like three in the morning listening to music because I'm wanting to be at the bar, but instead trying to walk around, walk it off, do my prayers, read my book. So I made a promise to my unborn child at that moment that he wouldn't know what it's like to have a drunk dad or an alcoholic or an active alcoholic in the family. That's kind of what's kept me there. And that's probably what keeps a lot of people there. It does. Absolutely. It absolutely does. So he's three years old. Yep. He's three years old. You're three and he's three. Yep. Well, my daughter's 12 and I'm 12. So I can totally relate. It really is a blessing because you look every day and you're like, I had a hard day at work. Shit's not going my way. My boss is fucking around. My wife's grinding on my nerves. I drive by three bars on the way home. And then you go, oh, wait, no, I got to pick him up from daycare. And then you pick him up from daycare and he runs up to you with his arms out and yelling, daddy. And you're like, yeah, that's why I'm sober. Yeah. Right there. Yeah, man. I remember that. I remember that three-year, four-year, five-year-old. It's so beautiful, man. It's so beautiful. That unconditional love that you give and you get from your children is an inexplicable joy that... You know, you can only, I mean, the word I have for it is just gratitude. I'm grateful that. Oh, yeah. I don't have to. She never, ever has to see the man that I was before she was born. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's the best gift I can give her. I know exactly how you feel, Matthew, and it's beautiful. So tell us, Matthew, then, how do you maintain that spiritual condition, that conscious contact with a higher power? For me, I spent a lot of time thinking we can start it with what is my higher power. And for me, I don't mind sharing it because it doesn't take the power away from my higher power to share it. I believe in the acronym G-O-D. It's the good in others daily. So I spend part of every day trying to find the good in other people. I believe that people are inherently good. There are people out there that are inherently evil, but I believe everybody has that good inside them. So in searching for that, that's kind of what keeps me in my spiritual contact with my higher power is keeping a positive outlook on other people because if I spent too much time thinking about what other people thought about me and focusing on negativity, then you start down that negativity spiral when you start going down and you start going down. And the next thing you know, you're in, you know, fuck me land where you're yeah. sitting there going, fuck me, I'm fucking stupid and all that other shit. So for me, keeping the focus on this guy is probably yelling at me or this guy's yelling at me to do something at work, but he's got four kids at home and he's probably got a boss above him that's yelling at him to get the work done. It's 80 degrees outside this week and he said his AC on his car is out or something. You know, you got to consider the conditions because he's probably a really good guy, but the good in others daily is really, it's, it's what keeps me sane and it's what keeps me level right now. It's a wonderful way of looking at the world because we all make a conscious decision every day to look at everything in a positive or a negative light. 
And I don't think I've had too many discussions, at least on the air, in reference to that particular aspect of our lives, which is our perspective, including God or using the concept of a higher power to look for the good in everyone, regardless of the situation, is, I guess, an enlightened state of being. I mean, as a human being, we have to accept that we are imperfect. And if we accept that we are imperfect, then we accept that those around us are imperfect. And not everyone is going to act the way we expect them to act or think they should act. So having that acceptance and love and patience and tolerance for the world around you, it certainly takes a lot of the angst out of your day. I mean, I would assume so anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's times, I'll use another example, like if you're in traffic, right, and some guy cuts you off, or, you know, he pulls out in front of you on that turn right on red and he didn't see you coming and you got to slam on your brakes or, you know, swerve out of the way. You don't know. I mean, you can sit there and cuss and swear, but when you sit down and think about it, maybe that guy's got his mom in the hospital or maybe he just got out of the doctor where he figured out that he has, you know, cancer or a tumor. Or maybe he's got four kids at home and he's working 60 hours a week and his wife's got a problem and he's having to deal with the other side of the coin being... Al-Anon, being the spouse of somebody who is struggling. Yeah. And he cut you off because he's fucking tired. And yeah. he didn't even see you coming because he was focused on how he's going to pay the rent or if the water's going to be shut off tomorrow. And you can sit there and swear all you want, but you don't know that person's circumstances. Or maybe he just truly didn't see you. And it's nothing to get angry over. It's just part of your day and you move on. And if you focus on the negative things that happen too much, you're going to end up in the spirals. You really do have to take your life in an enlightened state where you have to be present and you have to be in the moment because what happened happened and what you're doing now is the thing that's important or you know how you react to those situations that happen is the most important part. You can't just let things affect you in ways that you think you have no control over. Absolutely. You have control over your reactions. You don't have control over that guy pulling over in front of you, but you do have control over you honking at him and chasing him down the block or getting out <laughs> of the car after he pulls over and yelling at him or grabbing your tire iron. You have control over those things. Absolutely. And again, this is especially in the beginning in early recovery, everything you just described there, I've done. And that road rage that I have experienced in early recovery it was the example that you just gave that somebody mentioned in a meeting that I remember going, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, all those years living on this earth for 30 plus years up until I found recovery, up until the day I was sitting in a meeting so pissed off because this guy did this or this guy did that. And then somebody just reminding me that, you know what? You don't know what this person's going through right now. And maybe... XYZ. And all of a sudden, I was able to put something new into my tool belt. I now had access to a recovery tool without even really realizing it. And what we do, especially in early recovery, is we try and fortify that toolbox and put these great tools of wisdom, these coping skills that we do not have. We do not have these coping skills. And I know I didn't because I have been there driving. Guy cuts me off. I lose my shit. I start chasing the guy down. At that moment, you're thinking you're justifying and rationalizing it, or you're just in a state of rage like I was. And I remember one time 
I actually caught up with the guy, and I get out of my car. The guy gets out of his car too, but he's got a pipe iron. And I just remember going, whoa, like all of a sudden it was like somebody just poured a glass of water on me. And I go, yeah, I'm not really prepared to deal with this. All right. (laughs) And I just got in my car, put it in drive and took off. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, what if that was a gun? What if that was a knife? What if that was this? That was my first thought. And then after that, when I shared about it, then somebody gave me their perspective. I had so much to think about in that moment. It's never happened again. Oh, yeah. Oh, you have to take those situations as this happened. Does it really matter that much? Correct. Am I going to ruin my day over somebody being rude to me in the line of the bank? No, it's not worth it. No. Or put my life at risk. Yeah. I have a daughter to think about, you know, and I, I don't have the luxury to put my life in jeopardy. And I mean, even if you think you don't have anything to lose, there's always something you can lose. A hundred percent. It's good stuff. Good stuff. HP, baby. All right. right. So, Matthew, let's talk a little bit about uh, your alcohol and drug use. So how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did they make you feel? Well, the first time I used alcohol, you know, I was one of those teenagers that didn't really get out to parties a lot. So, you know, the first time I went out was freshman year of college. And I hit it hard and it felt amazing. (laughs) As it always does. I was invincible. I could do anything. Puke and rally and come right back. It felt like molasses lightning coursing through your veins because it slows you down, but you feel fucking great. Yeah. From there, you know, I slowed down a little bit as college went on. I went down. I didn't really binge as much as just drinking one or two every now and then. And then something when I hit about 22, 23, I was legal. I was able to drink and I was working in a restaurant. And the restaurant allowed one free drink at the end of your shift. For us, one free drink is an open door because you get that one free drink and the next thing you know, you're spending your paychecks at the same bar that Mm, you work at. Yep. So I was working for free for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And at about that point, the girlfriend had left. The girlfriends came and went, kept drinking, kept drinking. And... The car broke down. I shut the internet off because you need that 80 bucks a month. And eventually, it was expensive to go out. So you'd sit there and you'd get yourself something at the liquor store and you'd ride it home on your bike, 30 pack with 15 on each handlebar of your bike. <laughs> right. That's a great workout. It is. It's like that weighs 20 a lot, pounds dude. on each side. It's crazy. <laughs> Seriously. Going up the hills. Cracking one up, and when you're at the top, make it lighter by the time you get home. So I got home, and I'd sit there, and I'd order a pizza, and a pizza would last two days, but the case would last about one and a half. So you sit there, and it gets expensive, and if I'm not drinking, then I'm waking up, and I'm feeling like shit, and I feel like less shit when I wake up, because when I wake up drunk, because, you know, you're waking up drunk, you still got that in Mm you. So at that point, I'm just maintaining a state. You know, the happiness is gone and all that. And about December 30th of 2011, I decided that I was going to head out to Chicago. Because December 30th, I went and 
went out to the bar and there was nobody there. So I decided I didn't want to do New Year's Eve in this crappy town. And I hopped on a train on December 31st at noon and I got to Chicago at 6 p.m. And I just searched for a party. And I found the party and I met up with these guys at a bar. I'd never met them before. I sat down on the bar next to them and I said, hey, where's the party at? And they said, well, the party's up at our hotel room. And I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but I went up with them and we were smoking weed, dropping acid, which was the first and last time for me there. Dropping acid, smoking weed, doing all sorts of stuff. And we head over to the concert across the street. They footed the bill for me to get in the door. And we went and we saw this concert by the Disco Biscuits. <laughs> they're a jam band. And they're basically just, for me, it, it sounds like music that you do drugs to. Right. And that is exactly what it was. I spent the New Year's Eve in Chicago with $100 in my pocket and a train ticket. And I had the most epic night of my life, party-wise. Right. And then I came home and I laid in bed for the next day because I had to let everything wear off. Of course. And I woke up the day after and I went to work and nothing's ever going to live up to this. So... What's the point of keeping on doing it? And from that point on until from January of 2012 to July, when I got sober, I started sliding hard. You know, I was already sliding. I thought that was good, but that was just a plateau. Right. On January. And then I kept sliding and kept sliding. I know people started groaning when you walk through the door in the bar. And you don't have to call the bar to tell them that you're going to be there. They already have a cold pint waiting for you you know, at 10 p.m. when you get out of work. Or the liquor stores know when you're coming in exactly what, what you're getting, so they ring you up before you even hit the counter. And getting that kind of reputation doesn't feel good. Well, it feels good at first, because you're like, yeah, people know me. Right. I'm important. But it doesn't feel good after a while. Mm -hmm. You're starting to be like, oh, I'm that guy. Mm -hmm. Even though Norm walked in the bar at Cheers, everybody knew his name, but they always waited for what he wanted to order. Norm never had a beer waiting on the end of the bar for him. People started groaning. People started making threats. And I wasn't getting in fights, but I wasn't the most popular guy around town. And I started reading stories about kids who had had alcoholic parents, and I decided that wasn't for me. I didn't want to be that guy. And I sure as hell wasn't getting anywhere with that because being an alcoholic wasn't very attractive for most women around me. So... I decided for my unborn child that I was going to get sober. And um, I asked a buddy of mine who had been my drinking buddy a couple of years back. And he was doing really good in the restaurant we were at. We were working together. He was always happy and smiley and positive and upbeat. And I go, damn, man, what are you on? What are you doing? What is this? Where is this smile coming from? And he goes, fuck, man, I'm sober. That's what's happening. And... I was like, I kind of want some of that. <laughs> and he goes, come on, come with me. So I, I set up a day that I was going to go with him. And I bought myself a six-pack the night before. And I drank five of them. I called my dad. And I said, I'm done. There's a beer in the fridge for you when you come over tomorrow. And there the next day I went, woke up feeling like crap because I wasn't totally wasted that night. So I woke up. Rolled my ass into the meeting, and the rest is pretty much history. Wow, man. Wow. I'm curious because 
you mentioned the girls weren't very attractive to that guy, but you made a promise to your unborn child that you were going to stop. So how long had you been with, I guess it's your wife now, right? I actually hadn't met her until I was just over a year sober. Oh, really? Yep. And I was sober and single, and I was getting death threats on Facebook and whatnot. So, Death threats? You know, if, yeah. I mean, you get a certain reputation being a drunk asshole. If you're talking to somebody's sister, Ooh. they'll figure out, and you'll start getting threats on Facebook. Oh, my God. I actually still have it saved on Facebook somewhere. It says, if you talk to my sister again, I'll bury you, punk. Wow. And that's when I decided, okay. I think I'm done you know, here. I think I'm done. I don't really like these people. And so, okay, I got you. So you had gone to the meetings, gotten sober, had a year and a half sober before. About a year. Okay, yeah. about a year before you met your wife. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. It does. That does make Actually, sense. Actually, I met her nine months in. I still had three months on a year. Early recovering, dating is hard because you say, let's not meet at a bar. Then the question of why comes out, right? Right. And then you're like, well, I'm two months sober. And then you realize maybe I shouldn't be dating at this stage. And not just from the other person's perspective, but from your own perspective. Like, are you truly ready to share that part of yourself with somebody else? Has it developed enough yet? And you really got to make that decision yourself because some people, they develop it a lot faster. But for me, it, it took a while. It didn't feel right. So I waited a long while before I started talking to women again. And when I did, I met her. That was about nine months in. And that was it. And that was it. It's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. So then if that's the case, then, well, you know what? Let's jump into the closing questions because... I'm about to ask you questions that goes in there anyway. So let's jump into some of these closing questions. These are questions that I have for the newcomers. I want newcomers to hear these questions about early recovery because in many cases, they're going through the same experiences. Just like the road rage, I totally related to that. The, the way you described it, I actually was, as you were describing it, I was remembering myself in my exact episode of that behavior and so hopefully there's a newcomer out there that goes, wow, man, I better chill out when I'm cruising on the highways. If not taking it, literally take it metaphorically. Yes. You know, in any situation, are you going to be the guy that chases down the guy or are you going to be the guy that just gives him the fuck you wave and, you know, continues on your day? Absolutely. Turn it over. Yep. All right. So, Matthew, I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery. You're going to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. <laughs> Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> All right. So initially, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? For me, I had gone before to meetings and it was pride, honestly. The first time I went, it was pride that kept me from being like, oh, well, I can beat this. It's easy. You know, this is easy. It's easy. At that point, I hadn't hit the bottom that I had had. Right. And, you know, eventually your pride goes away because there's nothing to be prideful about. It's true and utter defeat for me when I walked into my first meeting. So it is a sense of pride that's keeping you from going because you're like, oh, I can do this myself. It's basically just surrendering and saying, no, I need help, man. 
you know, I was young. I just wasn't mentally ready. And I mean, there are a lot of people who are able to be good young recovery stories, but I think somebody needs to be truly mentally ready at any age. You have to be mentally ready to make that leap because it's not just changing your habits. It's changing your life. You have to change everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. You only have to change one thing when you come in here. That's everything. everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> Perfect. So then number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time it developed that hope that you could recover? For me, it, it was a while in. It was about 14. It wasn't a while. For, well, for, for a newcomer, 14 days is a while. It's a long while. You're not able to sleep. You're sweating for no reason. You're angry. You're scared. And for me, it was when I was able to sleep through the night, when I was able to have dreams again, when I was able to not shake, when I wasn't walking around with my iPod plugged in at four in the morning and I had to be at work at six and I just couldn't sleep because I was like, I just can't sleep. There's no reason. But for some reason, there's all this energy built up inside of me. And then you realize it's because you're not using that depressant anymore. Your body's producing the same amount of energy as it was when you were drinking. But now that you're drying out, you're loaded with energy. You've got all this energy and you can't sleep because your body chemistry is not allowing you to. And for me, the hope was, it sprung from that. The first time I was able to sleep through the night and I had a dream, I was like, this is going to be a little easier than I thought. When I had somebody in recovery that was a day less than me or a day more than me, we went through like brothers together. Right. We were battling together. Having somebody that you're able to talk to, that you can sit outside the meeting and smoke with, or that you can sit in the meeting and before meeting and the after meeting and go to Denny's or hang out with somebody who you can be like, man, I had a dream last night. And he's like, dude, I had one two days ago and it was awesome. Being able to find that person, or if not that person, find something to do to keep your mind busy and you know to keep your hands from being idle. If I had sat around my apartment instead of walking around town, yeah, I would have walked or biked down to the grocery store and made the trek back with the 15-pack on each side. <laughs> but I just had to keep myself busy. I'm trying to picture this right now, the bicycle with all that beer on it, and it's like a mem you would see on Facebook. Right? Oh, yeah. You might have a drinking problem if. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it, was, it was real. Oh, man, these living nightmares that we have. I love it. All right, Matthew. So in early recovery or currently, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to one of our listeners? Obviously, I've got to plug the big book. Absolutely. Everybody, you sit there and you stare at that blue cover or whatever color the cover is, and you see the gold lettering on the side, and there's part of it that is rough. And there's a lot of very difficult stories in there, but there's a lot of good information in there too. And for me, it helped out a lot because I had a lot of questions. It was in my family. My grandmother had it. My dad struggles a little bit, but he's able to manage. I, however, was unmanageable. I had the same struggle that my grandmother did. I had all these questions of how does this work? How is there a just one? I wasn't able, and I'm still not able to answer that question. Is there a possibility for just one? Because I know the answer is no. There is no possibility for just one. And outside of recovery, 
I don't really read a lot, but there are a lot of podcasts I listen to. And that's where I started listening to podcasting and getting into it was those nights where I'd walk around. I'd be like, you know, I got to have it feel like somebody's talking to me. So I started downloading podcasts because when you dry up, a lot of your friends will disappear. They're not really your friends at that point because they were your drinking buddies. Right. And you got to realize that. And for me, I lost a lot of them. So I started just listening to podcasts because at least that gave you the feeling that somebody was talking to you or you could hear people talk and just walking around, getting sober. So listen to podcasts. If you need to hear the human voice, talk to family members. Just don't inundate them. Read the big book. That's a real big one. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It'll, it helps a lot. You know what? On that topic of the friends, right? Like you're going to lose friends. Oh, that's, yeah. That's not a bad thing. No. Right? Uh, you know, you have to change the people, places, and things around you that were so familiar for you. I mean, for you walking home, you're driving your bike or however, there is a route you take. And on that route is your old buddies, your old drinking holes, you know, all of the old haunts that at some point, if they go away, it's not a bad thing. No, and it's not. Because for me, I didn't see it as losing friends. Don't look to them for help. If these people are truly going to be supportive and be friends, then they will understand what you're doing, right? They will understand this is what Matt has to do because Matt can't do the shit Matt does anymore. Absolutely. And if they're angry with you, then I don't know, man. That's just not right. All right. Listen, I'll tell you this much. My nickname was Oh No. Okay? That was my nickname. I would walk in and they would go, Oh No. And then that stuck. That became my nickname. My nickname, when they would see me go, hey, what's up, Ono? It was that bad that when I got sober, even my friends that were still partying out there, okay, and I made the decision to distance myself from them. They didn't make the decision to distance themselves from me. But I got to tell you, every single one of them was glad I found recovery. There wasn't one of them that said, God, man, I wish you could still smoke weed. Right? right? Not one. I was a terror. I was, like you were describing, I didn't get any death threats, but my friends, I had lost them all. Even my buddies that were out there using were like, dude, you, you are not one of us. You've lost the right to use. And uh, God, there's nothing worse than being rejected by your drinking buddies. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I Nobody get it, wants man. to party with a shit show. No. Listen, I was that guy. When your nickname is, oh, no. All right, you've reached a point where, hey, buddy, enough's enough. You need to do something different or die. All right, and that's where I was headed. And I don't mean to turn it around on you, but just for the listener, would you have been as successful as you are had you not reached the point of, oh, no? Oh, absolutely not. You would have gone right back. So everybody has to reach some bottom. Other people's bottoms aren't as deep as some, but some people do have to hit that point where... They get that wake-up call where they're like, oh, my nickname is Oh No. I don't want that. Oh, and here's the thing that in that it wasn't until I was, I don't know how deep into the program and how deep I was into sobriety that it dawned on me just how bad it was. Because I used to wear that Oh No nickname like a badge of honor. As unbelievably ridiculous as that may sound, it took a while before I woke up one day and went, oh, dude, seriously? 
How how <laughs> fucked up is that train of thinking that we think that that that's okay? Yeah, it's my nickname's Oh No. Yeah, dude, that's right. Oh God, oh man, lots of memories. So moving forward, number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Honestly, the best thing that I ever heard was just fucking do it. The guy said, you know, I can tell you're not happy, my friend, who is recovering at the time. He said, just do it. You know, if you don't like it, go out to the bar afterwards and get a drink. But just come. And then another thing, we had a server at that same restaurant who wasn't that fond of me. After the first meeting, I had five or six days under my belt. I was going every day. And five or six days in, she goes, oh, no, you're just a dry drunk. You'll go back. You'll never make it. You'll always be a drunk. Ooh. And just the way it was said, I can remember exactly the way it was said and how she was leaning through the window and how her face looked when she said it. Now, three years later. (laughs) And just, you know, that bullet, that arrow to the heart where you're like, I'm trying to do something good and I'm proud. I'm five days in. I don't have any alcohol in me at all in the last five days. And to hear somebody discount your achievement like that, it just, it fuels something inside you. If it doesn't break you, it will fuel you. And for me, it fueled me. And it kept me right up until I met my wife. She's always been my support net. And another thing was just, like I said, keep coming back, obviously, is one of them. And the last part was the thought of having to raise a child in an alcoholic home. Yeah. That's rough. And, you know, I had friends that came from that. And I saw the way they had turned out. And I didn't want that for my kid. I didn't want my kid to be walking along a guy like me 20 years from now, yelling out song lyrics in an empty parking lot and throwing beer bottles. I mean, that's a good adventure, but that's not a lifestyle. No. No, and not everybody can process that information while they're drinking. Most don't come to that. Well, I'm not going to say most. There are those that can't have that awareness or spiritual awakening or however you want to phrase it, how important it is that your children not be affected by this horrible disease, at least not by your hand. And there's so many out there that, at least some of the guys, very good friends of mine that are in the program that now have 10, 15 years, first came in beat up, defeated, and estranged from their children for some of them almost 20 years. And so reuniting with them and being this new person, and you see the joy in their face, you see the joy in their children's faces, and I got to tell you, man, it is like if I'm fortunate that for me and like you are as well, that I don't have to experience that elated feeling of I finally got my dad back after 20 years. It never has to be, it never has to process that way. It just has to be, you know what? My dad just doesn't drink and that's it. Yeah. I like to have my kid affected positively by my alcoholism. And I know that sounds so strange when I say it, but through my alcoholism, I was able to, and I am currently still able to be in recovery. And through that, that's affecting my child positively because they're not going down the negative road. They're not privy to my experiences negatively. 
if I was still drinking. Absolutely. So the final question then, number five, if you could give our listeners only one suggestion, what would that be? Three words, the most important words, the last words in every meeting, keep coming back for early recovery, for any bumps or humps or anything, keep coming back. Keep refilling that spiritual tank. Keep talking to people. Don't isolate. Just keep coming back. Because, like I said, it's the most important piece of advice that you can get. Because as soon as you stop going back in early recovery, as soon as you stop going back, you start slipping. And it may not be a big slip, but you'll start slipping. You still have those old habits. You haven't broken them yet. You need to keep coming back. Because if you don't, then, I mean, you're going to be just as miserable as you were the day you came in. Or even more so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen, brother. Matthew, great suggestions, man. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. Thank you very much for having me on, O. It's been an absolute pleasure. And as we say here in Costa Rica, pura vida. Pura vida, O. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.